Turn up your volume. Because you're about to listen to The Sick Podcast. Simmer down with John Simpson. Brady Kachuk with the tip. His 100th goal in his 300th game, and it's a Gordie Howe hat trick to tie it. The sickest Ottawa Senators podcast. It's going to be sick. Well, hello, everybody there. It is a nice high noon and not that nice of a day. It's a Wednesday here in the National Nations capital. We just got hit by our first snowstorm of the year, uh, but no big deal here. We're going to warm your hearts. We're going to make you feel better, but we're going to have a little bit of a change here. Justin Murray has been given the day off. And I'm going to have the opportunity here to just spend some time one-on-one uh, with my good friend, Michael Landsberg. Of course, all of our listeners and people around the Canada and the world uh, certainly know Michael for his work on TSN. And also, I think, very familiar with his work now that he has done with his program of Sick Knock Week, Not Week and lots of other stuff. So I thought, you know what? be a fun day um, to just forget about the hockey. Sen's not playing a ton. There was no games last night. And what could be better than just to hop in and have a little time with ML, just to talk one-on-one. And I think for a lot of listeners out there, I know for myself, even in previous years when I'm at TSN, it is a different feel when all of a sudden you are um, change of, of season, you know, kind of feeling out what it's going to feel like. And I find that even more so this year, starting out something new, new venture, something I absolutely love every day at noon to hop on, to have an opportunity to talk. But in this particular case, like I said, this is going to be unique and interesting just to go through. And I think for a lot of people in the past, and unfortunately with Michael, we've only ever really had him on the Bell Let's Talk days. We haven't talked uh, shop or talk to other things or had the opportunity. And I'll say from a broadcasting standpoint, one of my biggest thrills of coming back to Ottawa, I always wanted to be on TV, didn't quite reach that. Certainly was very lucky in having a great show on TSN for a number of years, but it was also the opportunity to do off the record. To me, that was a very cool feeling. Uh, it was one of those shows that I watched and I thought, man, what a great format, how cool that to be. So I was very fortunate to uh, hop on with Michael a number of times before uh, the show ended up finishing up. And to me, that was really cool uh, coming back in, going head to head with Gary Lawless lots of times and uh, just having some fun on the broadcast. A little off the wall, which is certainly what we like to be here with the uh, the podcast as well. Uh, so I hope everybody out there, as I said, from a sense perspective, not a whole lot going on. Uh, they end up having a day off again today. Uh, they will skate tomorrow, and then I guess we'll start to get a feel for these sleep doctors, how everybody's feeling, how everybody's looking, what are some of the thoughts on, hey, how is it going to look for the four teams that went over to Sweden and all of a sudden hop back into the schedule? And you look at this crazy send schedule, you got the game on Friday, then you got a little bit of time off, then they don't play till the following Friday. But as I just posted on social media a little while ago, Boy, oh boy, when you look at that December, the calm before the storm. And I put out a little thing yesterday. Just have a little bit of fun. Uh, but for anybody that's ever uh, read the book or watched the movie, The Perfect Storm, I'm kind of looking at the Ottawa Senators and I'm understanding the numbers. I'm understanding where they're at. I'm understanding some of the chaos that still goes on with the hockey club a little bit. And I'm kind of wondering what the heck is going to end up happening here as far as the schedule itself. It can either go where, and I think some people feel like all of a sudden they're going to hop in and they're just going to hit a rhythm there. They're going to feel very good. I'm not saying I know exactly. Well, let's say hello to Echo who wanted to come over and have a little chat here. But I look at this and wonder, hey, is the club going to be capable of playing so many games on the road, uh, having those tired moments, not necessarily having the most structure? Health-wise, they should be in pretty good shape as Thomas Shabbat is close to returning. 
but are they going to have enough to kind of take it next level? Well, we'll certainly see. This was a part of the schedule where you felt like they needed to get points in the bank, and we also look around the division itself. It's going not going to get any easier uh, when it comes to the Ottawa Centre. So, as I said, that's the big hockey talk, and that's what we'll continue to swirl around before Friday. Of all teams facing the New York Islanders, right? There's never anything overly exciting uh, about an Islanders game, at least in my estimation. So, we'll see what ends up happening with the schedule there, and just waiting momentarily Early, uh, before ML has an opportunity to hop on with us and as I said have a little chat here on a well, I won't call it a free form but certainly on a Wednesday where it's going to be uh, a little bit quieter than normal uh, also from a sense perspective uh, curious just on social media in reading what people are feeling I think there's still a lot of excitement and one of the cool things that TSN continues to come out with all the time is they have their draft prospects uh, and then they ended up coming out with their rating of the top 50 under 24 so obviously 23 and under a couple of ottawa senders ended up in that top 10 in timmy stutzla uh, in jake sanderson so i think from a sense perspective i was having a hard time on the page scrolling down a little bit further so i'm not positive as to what was rated later and i was trying to get my head around it. i didn't have time before the show to quickly look assuming brady chuck's not on there but i did wonder where some of the other young players might feature in especially a ridley greg uh, especially a, a guy like pinto um those are a couple of guys there that might not be on the big radar uh, like a Stutzlin Sanderson, but certainly uh, you would understand would be very good prospects and in the system. And we have talked about, hey, Ridley, Greg, and also to this, the Fast and Furious. This is one of the nice parts about the schedule coming up is that that Shane Pinto suspension, boy, that'll be whittled down very quickly. It seems slow. It seems like it's moving along, but all of a sudden those final, what, 28 games are going to come quickly here. And next thing you know, he's going to be back in the lineup. And I think a lot of people are asking, and I don't have the answer, uh, as to whether or not the salary cap situation will end up being in effect in a sense of will they have room to bring him in? Will Thomas Shabbat's time on long-term IR? I do not have the answer to that, but I think most of us look at it and think, boy, it would be really nice to have an opportunity here to have a Shane Pinto, to have a Ridley Gray, to get a look at this lineup, maybe a Thomas Shabbat on the back end and finally be, uh, be full and all of a sudden look on paper. And I also wonder within the hockey ops, one of the things that was commented on this morning that I thought made a lot of sense was what is it like for a new set of eyes coming in? And I look at a guy like Steve Steos. Oh, there we are. Forget about the, uh, the meaningless Ottawa senators talk. Michael, how you doing this morning, brother? Uh, you know, I, uh, I was doing really well and now I'm doing <laughs> really, really well. Cause good okay. to see you, buddy. Yeah. Good to see you too. Yeah. I thought it would be fun to first of all, have you on. And as I said, this is the, the sad part of our conversation. We do end up texting a fair amount, but the only time I talk to you, um, and not that we're going to turn into the, uh, you know, bell let's talk day, but it had been in the past where we'd have you on for a few minutes and just, Oh, Michael, what's going on in your life and what's new. And we'd throw around a few other things, but not an opportunity to just really sit down, uh, and have just a good old talk with a couple of good old buddies. You know, I mean, that's, uh, that's, kind of the definition of talk radio, um, which is no depth to it, right? Um, yeah. And the same thing like on, on TV, on Off the Record, you know, 22 minutes for the entire show, you, you know, the long form interview, that's what podcasting, that's what, you know, yeah. what you're doing right now, that's what it's best at. Right. You can't get this stuff. I mean, Howard Stern's done it for for years and years and years, and he's been incredibly yeah. successful at, you know, really getting into a topic with a person. So um, you are the uh, Ottawa equivalent of Howard Stern. <laughs> so go anywhere, anytime. 
Yeah, exactly. And it is funny, as you say, Michael, because there's a few things here and this is part of, yeah, I've started a podcast and there's a zillion of them out there. And it was really interesting for myself. I was happy with the venture. You're excited. Uh, it's something new. I knew I wanted to get going. And it is interesting. I will say this, and this is a bit back to when I worked with TSN. When we talk about mental health, and certainly for myself, it's been about five months since I got let go by TSN. Uh, it's been an incredible roller coaster, and it's still to that point. Uh, what I also find is when we get into this time of year, even when things were great in my life, it was not the best time of year. You had a little bit of those blues coming with the weather and everything else. But to the point where we kind of, you know, kind of brush it off. But I'll say this. When I worked the four-hour show at TSN, one of the things, I don't know how you felt when you're broadcasting, I enjoy the hour of being here. Like therapeutically, when I'm on with Justin Murray, who normally co-hosts, or I'm just having other people, it is the one part of the day that's quite interesting where I'm able to transform into a really good space, which I guess is not a bad thing, right? If you're trying to mental health-wise, just start to get yourself into a pretty good place of feeling good. Well, I think broadcasting in a lot of ways, uh, you know, if you're going to do your best at it and all of us have different bests, but if yeah. you're going to maximize um, what you have, um, you have to be focused on it. Right. And uh, one of the things with mental illness is we obsess on things. So if you can break that cycle of obsession, uh, then that's a great thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's like this escape. Um, and, uh, you know, People used to ask me all the time, like with Off the Record, did you, mm -hmm. did you, you know, like, was it a really, really hard job um, with, you know, depression? Uh, and my answer was, I think everybody's job is hard with, with, with depression. You know, yeah. I, I don't think it changes if you're a broadcaster. It's, it's just the inability to focus on the task at hand and not um, like your brain is basically trying to screw you from the moment that you wake up. And mm -hmm. if you're going to broadcast, you have to try to find a way to uh, to uh, win that battle, at least for a half hour, which was, you know, a case with a TV show or uh, a radio show, obviously longer. But, yeah, I, I think there's a real value to being distracted. Yeah, and, and I, I agree with that. A couple of things and I think back to, first of all, I don't think in the last 11 years when I came back to Ottawa, and I was actually thinking of some different timelines uh, back to 2011, 2012, then all the time with TSN. It was interesting how I was able to navigate things from a mental health standpoint, had lots of ups and downs. But one of the things is I had a purpose every day, and whether it was 6 to 10 a.m. or 2 to 6 p.m., which I shifted as far as shifts, it gave me something. And one of the things I got to say was most difficult and one of the reasons to have you on was all of a sudden middle of June. And I keep saying, and I think we all say it within Bell Media or just in broadcast in the world, you know, it's coming someday. You know what I mean? And, and that's easy to say. Easy for people to say, well, I don't. And, and they kind of felt in the industry, but still from a shock standpoint. And I got to say for myself, mental health wise, that all of a sudden of not having a purpose of not having something every day. I got to tell you what, man, that sent me into a serious tailspin. And I was very fortunate with my girlfriend, Mir, and some of the support around me. But for you to sit there, for people to sit there and, you know, just be like, oh, this is no big deal. Like that just threw me for an absolute loop. And I guess for yourself going from being so busy all the time, what is that? Now, I know you do a ton of work on top of that, ML, but what has that been like just as far as kind of a set schedule? And as you said, maybe getting your mind into a good place. You know, there's uh, there's a lot that you just said um, yeah. that uh, um, let me uh, let me start from your you know mentioning when you lost your dog your job. Uh, and by the way, um, you and I have spoken about dogs and what they bring. Yeah. Uh, just so you know, can you see him? 
Oh, absolutely. Because I'm just looking around the corner and my big live audience is Echo the dog. And and what's fun about Echo, which uh, we have commented about that, is that she doesn't really follow me along. But one of the cool spots has been since I've been doing the show here in little studio in the basement, she decides, and I don't know why, but I love it. She decides that she wants to actually be here in the basement when I'm talking. And it is really neat how that strange little bit of support actually feels incredibly good. It does. I mean, dogs are amazing, uh, whether you have a mental health battle or not, whether you have a physical battle or not. Dogs are are amazing. Uh, but yeah, back to, uh, you know, losing your job is yeah. catastrophic in most people's lives. Um, and uh, if you have a propensity to, uh, to mental health challenges, like depression and anxiety in particular, if you battle those things, mm-hmm. and then you take a, a catastrophic event in your life, however difficult it is for the average person with no mental health battles to, uh, to deal mm-hmm. with, it's way more difficult for those of us who go into like the firing already with a lack of stability in our heads. And mm-hmm. uh, like, I, I just, I, I look at my life and I look at my inability to handle some things. Uh, I have found that uh, anxiety, for instance, for me, I just, there's things that I have a lot of difficulty coping with that mm-hmm. I catastrophize that, you know, I, I'm, I can just obsess on something that's worrying me in a way to the exclusion of like everything else. It's like, it goes, and I, I never say this. I, I, you know, I, I, I don't say it to my wife or my family or friends ever. Like, I don't say, Oh my God, I'm obsessed with whatever, but it's with me every second. And it really does detract from my enjoyment of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I'm saying is, you know, you have, uh, you have these battles that you fought. And then when something really bad happens to you, I think that you are less equipped because of those battles to, uh, to deal with it. So I'm not surprised that it was really difficult for me. It, it, you know, it's been totally different. You yeah. know, uh, I, uh, when I left broadcasting, I felt this sense of freedom that I had never experienced before because essentially Mm -hmm. I did a daily talk show on sports for all of my adult life, whether it was sports desk sports center or off the record or after that, um, first up, uh, I, you know, like five days a week I did, you know, a sports talk show and I loved it, especially television. I mean, off the record was a joy, Mm -hmm. but I never, and this is this. There's a lesson here um, that, for some reason, I was aware of before I was in this situation. But you can't let your job define you, and that's really easy to do uh, in broadcasting. That mm-hmm. it will define you. That you see yourself as the host of a show um, because that's what people know you for. That's what they talk about. You know, like I worked really hard over the course of my career, especially through off the record to not let myself be defined in my own head as the host of off the record, because you know, one day it's going to be gone. And then what do you have? You know, it's like the hockey players uh, that, um, and this is the vast majority have this battle in their lives when, when they retire, right? All they've ever been uh, is a hockey player. And when I say all they've ever been, I I don't mean that they haven't been, uh, you know, father or, or, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, her husband or son or anything else. But that's really what defines you. You know, like what what was Sean Simpson when you were playing hockey? 
Um, and you know, well, like I'm not going to make the obvious joke at this point, like crappy <laughs> goaltender, because I, you know, I'm buddies with you. Uh, but you know, you were you were Sean Simpson, the hockey player, right? <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, uh, so I worked really hard not to be Michael Landsberg, host of Off the Record, and I think that uh, that prepared me for leaving broadcasting uh, and for life after broadcasting. But I will also say that I had this logical thing to step into uh, because mm -hmm. I had been kind of working two jobs. I'd been a mental health advocate for uh, 10 years before I left broadcasting. So I had something to dive into um, mm -hmm. that occupied like every. So I, I wasn't doing two jobs anymore. I was only doing one. So the best thing that ever happened to me, uh, the best thing that ever happened to me was probably, I'm talking professionally now. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Get, getting the break at TSN. Um, mm -hmm. When TSN launched, uh, they hired four people on air. And somehow, 26-year-old Michael Landsberg, who never worked in TV, got one of these jobs. That's a huge break. Like, I, I thought at the time, God, I wonder if, like, in sports in Canada, and anyone ever got a break like that before? And the answer was probably no. So I got this huge break to get into broadcasting, and I got this huge break to get out of broadcasting and have a totally different direction in my life. So um, to tie it all full circle, mm -hmm. because I had a second act already planned, it was not only easy for me to leave broadcasting, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it was awesome to leave <laughs> yeah. broadcasting. And you yeah. were in the exact opposite spot. Um, so it's it's really tough. It is, Michael. And and to what you're saying is also interesting because part of what you also did is you transitioned into that when you were still on the air, right? I mean, people really got to know you as Michael Landsberg and the Sick Not Week and a lot of the programs were, as you said, and, and this is when I've talked to Mira, this is exactly. Now, for myself, some of the coping mechanism I've had is that you go through this a few times in life, so you think it helps. But there's no doubt when I was, and I was a decent hockey player at one point, but oh, yeah. it, only last, it only lasted about six months. And then and the funny part, now I was lucky because I actually, of all things, got into broadcasting and scouting and I found a really good career in a way. But to your point on a lot of hockey players, here's exactly what happens. First of all, you don't have a plan. Secondly, you know, especially at the junior hockey level, if you haven't gotten an education, you're just the coolest thing ever. So, of course, when you're finished, I still want everyone when I walk in the room to be the coolest guy. I want them to be like, oh, my God, remember Sean Simpson when he was with the Greyhound? <laughs> and, and when that's not there and at the same time, without a doubt, the biggest fault is that person just moving around. They don't have a plan for their career. They don't have a plan for their life. And then they're just sitting there and they're so afraid to ask for help. And, and I'm not just talking about help of mental health. I'm talking about help of a plan. And this is also part of going back to all of it is, is quite simply having a plan at a young age for anything. And that's so much easier said than done versus what you talked about. A lot of people just don't end up having that, Michael. And I got to be honest with you, five months ago, uh, I could say, now I'm fortunate on some things that are happening in my life or very fortunate. But all of a sudden, what is taken away, as you just pointed out, was my identity and was also just something I really enjoyed every day. Like it was very therapeutic to go in and then all of a sudden, boom, it just ends up disappearing. So as I said, it yeah, it was a really, really tough stretch. You know, I've, I have spoken to way more ex-hockey players than current hockey players. Like yeah. an off the record, you could, anyone who retired, uh, who you wanted, you'd have a chance at getting. Mm -hmm. Guys that played, most of them, no chance. The last <laughs> thing they want to do is talk to Michael Landsberg on off the record. But so all these ex-hockey players that I got to know, many of them who were enforcers, right? You know, who, uh, who played a certain style that doesn't exist in any other sport. 
And they all had enormous difficulties dealing with post-hockey life because it was who they were. And nothing in your life for excitement is ever going to match stepping onto the ice on a Saturday night at Scotiabank Arena. Like nothing you do is going to be able to replace that if you're no. looking for the same thing. And I, you know, I say to guys when I used to, you know, talk to a lot of guys who were in this position, I would say you 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 can't look to replace that one for one. You have to find a way to find your excitement in something else. And the best time to do that, unfortunately, is a time that no one does it, which is when they're playing, right? <laughs> you know, like yeah. when you're playing, everyone wants a piece of you. And shortly after you retire, they want a piece of somebody you used to play with who's still playing. So uh, I'm not sure that advice is that useful because it's not like tons of people who are watching right now are, um, you know, are, are playing professional hockey and they're looking no, for no. life afterwards. But yeah. these are life lessons that I, I think are uh, including, don't let any one thing define you. Uh, otherwise, if that one thing can be taken away, and in the case of broadcasting, it's mm -hmm. inevitable, then uh, who are you going to be when that happens? Yeah, I agree with you. I think the other part too, and, and then this is the best part of your whole situation. I think back out, it's been 12 years since the passing of Wade Belak, and I, I know you were very close with him. Have things, and it feels like, and I'll go to the other part of this after you answer the question, is just quite simply talking, which a lot of men are not very good at. Um, have things changed in the last 12 years? Have there been some positives, Michael, from Wade's uh, passing? You know, I, 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 uh, I have a difficult time answering that question just okay. because – like, how, how could I know, right? You know, like everything that I would know to be able to answer that question would be anecdotal, like my own yeah. experience. Uh, you know, on Bell Let's Talk Day, uh, I would always get from people that were interviewing me because that's like, that was the one day a year where I answered questions as opposed mm -hmm. to yeah. ask questions, right? Yeah. And uh, it would always be, so, uh, you know, it's, 20, uh, it's 2019 and this is the eighth Bell Let's Talk Day. You know, we're doing a lot better, aren't we? And my answer was always, I, I don't know, right? You yeah. know, like that's that's a big world out there. There's, uh, you know, there's 35 million people in Canada. I, I don't know whether on average we're doing better, but I just know that it's still a problem, that in particular you're talking about men. I mean, women have uh, have similar problem, but not as profound in one area. Men have this fear of being perceived as weak. And if mm -hmm. we see our own mental illness as a weakness, we will not share. And if we do not share, we do not get help. So we continue to suffer. And I've said this to people many times. How long you felt crappy for? I mean, not exactly a medical term, but how long you <laughs> felt crappy for? And the answer, if the answer is like, uh, I guess a year uh, or two years or nine months. Okay, well, I promise you that when you wake up tomorrow morning, you will feel crappy. This ain't going away on its own because if no. you can get rid of it, it's on its own. You wouldn't, you wouldn't be where you are after a year. You got to chase the help. You got to fight for your happiness. And if you, if, if you see it as a weakness, you can't start the fight. You can't continue the fight. Somehow we have to get through to people that the, these illnesses that we're talking about, uh, garden variety mental illnesses, anxiety, mm -hmm. depression, OCD, we have to convince people that they are illnesses. They are not weaknesses. They are not self-inflicted. Uh, and I still think that that haunts us. The perception of weakness still haunts, in particular, men, uh, but women, uh, 
not as often perhaps, but women have other challenges uh, about getting the help that's out there. So are we doing better? Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure we're doing better, but there's more <laughs> mental illness in Canada right yeah. now than there's ever been. Uh, you know, COVID certainly bumped that number up and there's mm -hmm. still people mm -hmm. that I speak to every day who um, are totally in the closet, who, who won't share, won't go for help. Uh, how many times do we still now over and over again hear someone took their own life or tried to take yeah. their own life and people around them go, we had no idea. We had no idea. Yeah, no, I, I agree on that, Michael. I guess everyone, again, that is the whole part of being so different. And for myself, and I go back to 2011, being incredibly humbled, came back to Ottawa to restart my life. And then you look to, and this is a little bit that has helped me to some extent, but as I said, it's still been a very difficult time. I at least had a bit of a toolbox from that time of things to lean on. And at the same time, focusing on, this is Sean Simpson coming back to Ottawa with nothing, absolutely nothing, no career, nothing going on. And I look at it now and say, hey, very fortunate for the 11 years at Bell Media, very fortunate to have a job at TSN, because at least from a community standpoint, just overall, it just was a real positive experience. Now, how do you parlay that into the next part? And, and back to what you're saying, are we better? The only thing I feel, and I may be way off because I've been humbled so many times in my life where early on you take yourself so seriously and you're so great and you know nothing bad's ever going to happen to you that when you do roll through an initial divorce and the loss and everything else, to me, I get to a spot where I guess it could be, you could call it some a bit of confidence inside, but you're so humbled to the point of how could you take yourself too seriously to not talk about it, to not be real. And I feel like that has been a positive. You know what I mean? I feel like there are more people, and I'll just say males over 50. I'm 55 years old right now. I feel like there's a lot more people that realize, you know what, at the end of the day, once I pass away, nobody's going to care that I came out and mentioned that, hey, I'm having a bit of a tough time here. So I do think that that has, as to what degree, as you said, you don't know, you know, it's like your sexuality. We can kind of talk that we're in a better place as far as people coming out, but we have no idea how many people are still sitting there just absolutely terrified, um, you know, of their sexual orientation or at the same time, in this particular case of their mental health. Well, well said, you know, we, we don't know how many are out there, but we know that they are out there. And therefore those of us who, who want to make a difference, um, got to still try to make a difference, to try yeah. to find a way to crack the code. So here you have, let's just go with an example of a 35-year-old man. And his brain somehow is messed up. He's got depression or mm -hmm. anxiety or he's uh, addicted to something. We got to find a way to open that head, to crack the code, to find the combination, to open it up and allow him to speak about his illness. Because if you don't speak, you don't get better. Mm -hmm. Like I said, if you could fix it yourself, you would have done it already. And whether there's a million Canadians in this position or whether there's 5 million Canadians, uh, you know, to me, it doesn't really matter. It's just mm -hmm. a matter of they're out there. And it just, it, like, it just seems so simple, right? For those of us that don't feel the stigma. Um, like when I first spoke about it on uh, on Off the Record in 2009 with Stefan Richet, uh, mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to do something good for mankind. I was just, I, I knew Stefan Richet had battled depression in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. And I thought, that'll make an interesting question, you know, which is your job as a host. 
So I asked him, you know, would it be okay if I asked you about, uh, you know, how you're doing? And he said, I don't like to talk about it. It's very painful. And mm-hmm. I said, I'm glad I asked you in advance, but if you, would it help if I spoke about it? And he said, well, what would you talk about? So I told him my story and he said, okay, let's do it. So we did that. I had no intention whatsoever of, uh, I wasn't trying to do anything good for people. I just thought uh, if I could coax him to share, that would be a good thing. And that changed the course of my life, right? I found the value of sharing and the reaction that I got, um, most of it from men and almost all of it saying that watching two guys speak without shame and embarrassment empowered them to reach out to me and tell me something I'd never, uh, these people I'd never said to another human being before. So uh, we all have that power within us, uh, but not all of us get platforms like you and I have, right? You know, if uh, if you did exactly what, um, just using myself as an example, if if you were uh, an accountant and you did exactly the same thing, that in 2009 you came out and shared your mental illness with people at work, you, you're not getting calls probably from... Uh, from <laughs> you're getting from, a call from your boss saying, tax season's coming up. I'll wait you to stop this nonsense and get back yeah. to work. It's a great point. So you, you, it's not like, you know, uh, but because, because of what we've done for a living, you get platforms available to you. Uh, and uh, the ability to use those platforms, uh, you know, for me, uh, mm-hmm. is a joy. So what I was going to say was, after I shared that experience with Stéphane Richet on that show, I, there wasn't even like a tiny, tiny bit of me that wondered, what are people going to think? Like, it never occurred to me that yeah. I'm going to say this uh, to a national TV audience and people are going to scoff at me or people are going to say, suck it up, or people are going to say, oh, you know, you're just weak. Or, um, and I did hear some of this, uh, you just want us to like you. You know that people think you're <laughs> This arrogant. is a publicity so, stunt, yeah. right? So I did hear a little bit of that. But this is incredibly easy for me, as I think it is for you at this point in your life, where, mm-hmm. you know, you, you could speak to anyone, anytime, any group of people and not feel that sense of shame that um, maybe you would have 15 years ago. Yeah, no, I agree, Michael. And few things, and this is where you equate it to, the Stefan Richet one was incredibly powerful because it did bring to the forefront. And when I watch athletes, and sometimes I fixate on the Montreal Canadiens, but I remember when Jonathan Duran got traded there, I wanted to get away from the hockey player side. I wanted to go back to Stefan Richet and understanding what it's like as an athlete. And I look at even, and I don't know Jack Campbell at all, but I go through and, and I dealt with anxiety terribly. Uh, when I played sports and I've dealt with it and had a real tough time just in overall life. And I always put myself back into there. And then I think to yourself, you're the cocky, good looking broadcaster. How could you possibly, you're the most arrogant person on TV. You're so confident. I guess that had to be at that time, just incredible for, to me, I guess, striking such an incredible chord because you're not supposed to be. Michael Landsberg is not supposed to be mentally weak. He's supposed to be the most confident, arrogant, just strolling through life. And he's got to buy the balls. How many times are you going to use the word arrogant? Okay. I used it. <laughs> I can use it. Uh, but you, you can use it once, twice. Okay. But okay. Times and thir- I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I heard that every yeah. day of my professional life. Oh, no, I, I, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I am a really good example of you can't tell. You can't look at someone. Like if you yeah. think, and, and, you know, this is really hard for, um, this is one of the worst aspects of talking about mental health is that people can hide it. And especially I say to parents, you know, like you may think that you know your teenager. You may think that your teenager would come to you with a problem. 
But I'm here to tell you that if your teenager doesn't want you to know that he or she is struggling, battling either depression or anxiety or any of those other illnesses. I just generally talk about depression and anxiety because that's what I know, but they're also the most common. If you think that your 17-year-old son is going to come to you and, and say, I got a problem, uh, you're probably wrong. If you think that you would know, you're probably wrong. And the tragedy of this is when time goes by and people suffer in silence and put on this mask where they look happy, like like I may have looked doing off the record where, uh, you know, people would look and say, oh, you know, like depression. Are you kidding? Guy looks like, you know, like he's uh, got everything going. Uh, so, I, you know, I say to parents, like, you, you won't know if they don't want you to know. And we all know stories about, you know, kids trying to take their own lives or completing suicide. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, and people will go, we had no idea. And that's mm -hmm. the kind of thing that um, can't happen, you know, or shouldn't happen. Yeah. The one thing I will say though, ML, I do feel like different then. And I think about my parents' generation and everybody be completely different. Uh, I was actually adopted, but as far as my adoptive parents are from Priest River, Alberta, when I go through and think to growing up, we grew up in a broken home, had some substance issues with one of my uh, um, uh, siblings. But when you go back to the, the, the tools box that my parents had is completely different. Uh, I have two boys now that are in the United States. One is in the military at 25. The other one's finishing college a bit different, but I'll say, this for my girlfriend Mira and her boys are 15 and 12 what I see in them I can still see Sean Simpson at 15 and 12 I can relate to when I go back to because I'll say this having been from a broken family been adopted being a goaltender hello hello anxiety hello can I get a little more anxiety in my life no I'm actually going to work in the National Hockey League and broadcasting so in essence it's like a drug but to me, there is an ability, I think, when it comes to substance, comes to awareness, connection with that generation. I think for the people that kind of look away at times, I ask myself, are you not wanting to know what's going on or are you not equipped? I guess my point being, I feel those senses. And going back to one of the points that you made, and this is one of the things I want to make clear to people, when I hear people talk about anxiety and the different levels, when I was in the summertime and I had gotten let go and, you know, you start with the drinking, which I've, you know, since Labor Day have stopped drinking. And well, let's talk in a couple of years when I've truly kind of solved that. But that early on, Michael, when you talk about anxiety mixed with alcohol, the things going out to cut the grass or going out to do the simplest thing, thinking about tomorrow, when I hear that term, and I've heard that term mentioned for some people, they talk about how anxiety can be incredibly paralyzing. The minute I hear a term like that, that just takes me into that spot of where nothing can be possible. Nothing's going to happen. I don't want to leave the house. I don't want to do anything. And I'm not saying I'm necessarily in a spot where, you know, something terrible is going to happen, but the simplest move in life. And then all of a sudden, a few days later, I get going, you get doing something good. Yesterday, I had a fun show. I go out and all of a sudden I'm doing stuff in the garage. I'm doing that and I'm getting all ready for winter. It is amazing. And that, I guess, is one of the things that I've learned and want to share with people is that understanding of, you know, you see people that like athletes that don't perform and you wonder, okay, do they care? Well, I'm sure they care. Do they want to do well? Sure. But how much of that mental makeup and when it comes to anxiety that we call nerves, what we call depression, all these other things, 
man, oh man, it makes even the simplest task. And point being, I guess I find more and more, there's more and more people in the same situation that are worried about finances, worried about their job, worried about the world, worried about everything that's happening right now. And I think you can really relate to that simple fact. And going back to, boy, I think the youth right now, at least for my generation being 55 and a little bit younger, I think you can really relate. Like I'm assuming you and Corey, do you relate better to Corey and what his life versus maybe what your parents understood what you were going through? Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, I went into Corey's room when he was five and he was, uh, uh, am I allowed to swear by the way? Absolutely. Okay. So Corey is uh, my son whom you yeah, know, and yeah, uh, yeah. I know that you guys are friends and he values yeah. your friendship and likes yeah. you. Um, not that that's relevant to this story. So, so for me, my introduction to mental illness was my earliest memory when uh, it was obvious looking back that I had severe anxiety and that I had, uh, I had some phobias that mm -hmm. drove my life. But you, when you're a kid, especially, you have no idea what's normal and what's not normal. You have no. no idea, or at least I didn't have any idea about what was general anxiety disorder. When I was a kid, I, 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 I would have totally changed my own view of myself if someone would have said, oh, Michael, you, you, know, you have a sickness, and this sickness mm -hmm. is general anxiety mm -hmm. disorder. If someone would have told me that there is another person on the planet who has this fear of throwing up, this mm -hmm. fear of being around people who throw up, this fear of everything to do with it. It's called emetophobia. There's a name for it. If you would have told me there's actually a name for the thing you're yeah. experiencing, would it change my life? So when Corey called me and Karen into his room when he was five and he said to me, this was like, uh, you know, like 11 o'clock at night. Mm -hmm. And he said, um, am I going to throw up? So I said, Oh, wow. what, what do you mean? And he said, well, am I going to throw up? And I said, well, um, you know, do you feel sick? He said, well, how, how would I know what feeling sick feels like? So I turned to my wife and said to her, we're fucked. Uh, because I, <laughs> I knew that was me. Yeah, that was yeah. that was me at that age. And he has continued to, uh, in in many ways with his mental health, follow on, uh, on in, in my footsteps, which obviously, you know, I never wanted him to do. But his... The best thing he had going for it for him was was a parent that understood it from the inside out. Yeah, and it's still to this day, when he has a panic attack, uh, I think I'm probably the only one that can kind of talk him down and um, you know make him realize that uh, it's not the end of the world, that he's not dying, and that it will pass. Yeah, and I guess that to that kind of what I mentioned, you mentioned there. There's a blueprint, right? There's a little bit of a feeling of trying to relate to it, and I do see the commercials. And again, I still feel like in the, my mind sometimes when you hear about somebody, well, they got to take a break from work, or you know, they're they're and and then I just got to always take a step back and realize when I'm in a great spot. Well, come on, everybody else should be feeling great. Then when you are in those spots where you can feel it, it's unfortunate it takes you to be in those places to have a little more admiration, a little more caring for people, right? But I do think the relatable part of with the young people, and I guess the part of every generation being different, I think about social media, but I wonder from a communication standpoint, whether there is a positive, because I'll say from my standpoint growing up, what did I have from a communication standpoint? I had hockey, but I think about the end of a school year and I would go home for the summer. I would play a little bit of soccer. I wouldn't see anybody. Had no ability to communicate. Had a home phone. In some ways, is communication, now I know there's negatives that come with it, but is a young person now via text message, via social media, via other things, 
are there at least some better tools put in place? Because I can still remember thinking, cool. am I still going to have the same friends when I go back to school? Do they remember me? Do you think they'll still like me? I had all these crazy paranoias going forward that I think a little more communication probably could have helped back in the day. Uh, communication could have helped for sure. I think now, obviously, there's information available to us. We hear stories of people who may be experiencing the same thing as us, which is like the most powerful thing you can do for someone who uh, who is battling something in their brains and haven't really shared it. The way to get into their head and make a difference in their life is to say what this experience is like for you. And you get the reaction if they've been through the same sorts of things where they go, I think he's talking about me. Uh, and that can be the best thing that you can do for someone because many people with uh, a mental health challenge have no idea that they have a mental health challenge because they've never lived in anyone else's yeah. brain. So they don't know what normal is. And the worst thing for me was depression hit me so slowly. It was this tiny, tiny tap, this tiny tap that changed me a minuscule amount, so small on a regular basis that I didn't know what was happening. Until one day, something alerted to me to this reaction. Wow. I, th I, th I think I'm changed. I, th I think I'm a, a different person. Oh, my gosh. What happened to the person that I was? What happened to this gregarious, outgoing person that clearly had a bounce in, in his step and always mm -hmm. you know, looked forward to what was coming next, this belief that I had in myself, which people perceived as arrogance. What happened to that person? And it hit me, oh my God, that person is gone. And that person is replaced by someone I do not wanna be. And it was on that day that I realized I gotta go for help. And I knew what it was. I knew that it was depression, right? Because I guess I knew enough about it. But here's the thing, you mentioned, you know, you look at other people and when you're going through it, you have a lot more empathy for them. When I realized that I had severe depression, I thought, oh, man, this is nothing, nothing like I thought it was. So all the people that I thought, uh, you know, who took time off work, use that mm -hmm. as a great mm -hmm. example, you know, yeah. oh, so-and-so is taking off a couple of months or so-and-so had a breakdown. Uh, I never knew what that was. I just thought it was like they're weak, right? You know, like yeah. suck it up. Like, Come on. Uh, I, you yeah. know, how bad can it be? <laughs> and then when I experienced it, I almost wanted to go around to all the people that I had misjudged, never saying anything out loud. So it would be bizarre for me to apologize for what I was thinking. But all these people that I knew had battled mental health issues, uh, who in my own mind, you know, were somehow responsible for their own mental health issues and that if they tried really hard they could get out of them i wanted to go and say hey sorry you know sorry for what i was thinking because i thought i just thought you were weak yeah and how much of do you think relates to because i think of myself you know again hockey player wise crash and burn but i had a great opportunity coming up through the national hockey league working as an executive you're moving along everything's great you feel so good about yourself and that also went sideways and i've had a couple of different things but for yourself that is that star as you said that's rising at 26 you're going up you're going up how much of the depression correlated with where you were at in your perception of maybe where you thought your career was going to go, Michael, or at the same time, just the realization of, you know what, broadcasting isn't everything. It doesn't have to define me. I'm no longer feeling the drug of broadcasting that is going to take over and make me happy every day. I've leveled out to being a normal person and that normal person, that's not going to be enough to satisfy and it's not going to certainly, uh, you know, block off what I'm feeling as far as my depression. Dr. Simpson, you are 100% wait for it <laughs> wrong.
Okay, um, okay. But I mean, that is a, a very common experience that you just talked yeah. about. When when you try to get life satisfaction from external circumstances, uh, it, sometimes uh, that leads to bad places. But for me, I, I know what depression, what triggered depression. For me, it was out of control anxiety. Prone to anxiety, had, had these battles that I talked about. Uh, then Casey, uh, our daughter, uh, got sick when she was three and a half with a serious eye disease, um, which uh, certainly threatened her vision in both eyes. And I just, I just, you know what? I just, I couldn't handle it. I just obsessed about it all the time. One of my friends, this was, um, this was years ago. I remember she looked across at, at TSN and she said, oh my God, you just look like you're just so lost in a bad place. And I, I remember, I've never actually said that to anyone, that mm -hmm. Allison said that to me, not that the name means anything, yeah. but uh, she said that to me. And I thought, wow, she's right. I'm like, I'm, and so the more and more anxious I got, the more I obsessed about it, the more this went on, um, eventually I fell into this hole of depression. And I have since learned that the trigger for my depression is my anxiety, that mm -hmm. somehow massive anxiety, uh, when it gets out of control, turns into massive depression. And I remember the last time that I, uh, that I was uh, not on medication and had like a fall into the biggest hole, uh, I remember actually, I was going to Ottawa to host a, uh, a, a big banquet. It was a sports banquet. I'm sure they still have it. I hosted mm -hmm. it for a couple of years in a row. And uh, I just say that because it means I did a good job. Uh, yeah. And I remember dreading getting up on stage because I was mm -hmm. in a different position at that mm -hmm. point than I had been in the previous two years. So all I could think about was I can't do what I did. I can't get up there and, um, and, and be me. So I'm going to have to fake it and everyone is going to see it. Oh my God, mm -hmm. why did I say yes to this? I was dreading it to the point where I actually thought of making up an excuse not to go. That's how sure I was that I was going to be terrible. And that's an example of, mm -hmm. you know, depression and self-esteem. They go hand in hand. When you are depressed clinically, you lose self-esteem. And when you are severely depressed, you lose all your self-esteem. And how mm -hmm. about this? So I, uh, we taped off the record. And I'm in a car going to the island airport, Porter, to fly to Ottawa to do this. I'm dreading it. And my phone rings, and it's Todd Hayes, who was a producer at the time. Mm -hmm. And he says, you got to come back. And I said, why? He said, well, Mike Babcock uh, just, no, sorry, Brian Burke just got fired. I think that was it. I'm not 100% yeah. sure yeah, uh, yeah. what it was. But we have to retape the show. And I said, oh, man, well, I got a flight and I'm going to miss the flight. And then it was like, this is the greatest thing ever. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I, and I thought I felt terrible calling um, dude yeah. in Ottawa to say, yeah. hey, you know, I, I can't be there. And he goes like, I, I said, look, you know, I have no choice. And I didn't. You know, you can't say to your work, OK, you know, I, I, I can't do the job. Mm -hmm. But what no one knew at the time, nor most people would care at the time. But for me, this was thank God I don't have to get up on stage and do something that I will be ashamed of. Because in my mind, I was going to perform terribly.
Yeah, no, I, I can totally equate to that. And I think back more to playing sports and everything. And when you get to those spots, I, I'm assuming, was this for the Jewish Community Center yeah. uh, here in Ottawa? Yeah, just yeah. a great event. They bring people up. And I think it was the Kaleidoscope event that I actually met you at for the first time. And I thought you were leading to that because for me, having met you for the first time was quite intriguing and interesting because all I ever saw was Michael Landsberg on TV, super confident, always coming after me and Come giving on, me a hard time it, and a fun it, What's that? The arrogant, yeah, <laughs> no, you've said it all the time before, but I, but I thought to myself, and then I remember meeting you before. And one of the things that I've always had, and I don't now that you say that, I've never even really put it one in one. I love being on radio, I love being on TV, it's fun. I hate being in front of people, I have an incredible phobia and incredible nerve about being in front of a crowd to the point when people ask. And I now, when you say that, I'm trying to think, well, does that relate? And anytime I've had to speak, and I think a lot of people feel the same way, Michael, the sense of relief when you're done is incredible, right? It's like having the best sex of your life where you all of a sudden just come out of there, just like, oh my god. I I'm feeling so good here. I performed so well. Right. And now I'm going to actually just enjoy the simple fact that this is in the rearview mirror. Right. Well, there's so many places I could go with that to make it creepy. There's <laughs> yeah, so, like, this is the way my brain <laughs> operates. When, when okay. my brain is mentally healthy for real, like on a yeah. good day, and today is a pretty good day, uh, yeah. my brain works fast. So I got five things that I could say yeah. about you referring to it as the best sex of your life, but I will not say <laughs> any of those things. But I will say, that I love, love the experience of being on stage and talking okay. about mental yeah. health, except yeah. when I don't feel well. And then I'll be standing uh, off stage waiting to be introduced. And all I'm thinking about is why, why, why am I here? Why would I say yes? These people, you know, they're, they've told me they're really looking forward to hearing me and that it means a lot to their community or whatever. And I'm thinking, I'm just going to let them down. Mm -hmm. That's, when I hate being on stage, but I also hate being anywhere. You know, the one thing about mental illness that people don't talk about is it makes us retreat, right? Like you want to disappear everywhere you are. You want to be someplace else. And eventually, you know, the only place that you can feel, um, feel like you don't want to move from mm -hmm. is from your couch or your bed. And the desire to get away from everyone and anyone is something that people who have the same situations as you and I have, the same illness, mm -hmm. we all go through it. Like everyone, no one goes, nah, you know what? When I'm depressed, I like to be around people. No one, I don't think that's probably ever been said. <laughs> so yeah. the, the reason why I say that also is that, you know, anyone who's watching or listening, you know, maybe gets a glimpse into the head of somebody else and maybe their reaction is, yeah, I never thought about it like that, but you know, whenever I'm uh, not feeling well, or for the last year, I go to a party, and first of all, I don't want to go, and second of all, if I'm there, all I can think about is leaving. That, mm -hmm. if it's mm -hmm. not what you've experienced every day of your life, then that is not normal, and that yeah. is something that I'm telling you, you need to deal with. Yeah, I agree. And I think for other people, and this would be for myself, going in and doing four hours of radio every day, you control the environment. What would happen for me, and this is completely different now, although I'll say I'm so happy to have a good home, a happy place, a great partner. And to that point in the last five months, most of what I want to do is be home. But I even think back to doing a show. And one of the things in my morning show with JR and Hammer, great guys. I felt incredible. I went in there. It didn't matter what was happening at Bell Media. It didn't matter what was happening in the rest of the world. I went in and did a show with a couple of people where I felt awesome. They were good people. I didn't feel nervous about them. I felt like we were all working together. That was a positive. But having said that, 
I could control everything else I did. And I don't know how many times, and you have those conversations with everybody, Michael, about we got to get together for a beer soon and we got to do something. You know, I have my checklist of, oh, absolutely, which that means we're never going to see each other. I don't have any plan to get together with you. I'm just going to block this off. But even in that job, I was lucky because I can control the environment. All I had to do then, which I actually enjoy, is Twitter. But Twitter gives me the ability, and some people see it as a negative. The positive for me on Twitter is I can keep you at bay. I don't need to bring you into my real world. I just can have a little conversation. And the minute I decide I don't want to have that anymore, I block you out. And what do I do? I go back to hanging out with my dog and doing my different thing. And what you're saying right there is just so true for the people that have to fight it, that all of a sudden are dealing with what we're dealing with, but then have to go into and battle that with people every day, with a job every day, with everything. I can imagine this time, I say this time of year because of weather, but I can imagine how incredibly overwhelming that becomes. Yeah. I mean, what you just described is, uh, is exactly how it feels. But for me, I couldn't just, uh, and I love what you said about Twitter. You know, it's, it's like you're having a conversation with yourself, which when you're depressed is not a problem, right? You know, you just want to avoid everyone else. But, you know, like lying on the couch and thinking is, is not taxing. So ultimately, Twitter is kind of like thinking out loud, but not being with anyone. I love how you said that, you, oh, you know, when yeah. you get tired of it. But, uh, you know, for me, it... Uh, it was not as easy as uh, being able to say, well, I could control my environment. Like I remember, you know, many, many days when I would stand in the hallway in front of the green room where mm -hmm. four guests were waiting, um, you know, like, and, you know, when I would walk in the room, you know, like we would all engage and everyone would be really happy. And they were really, most of the time, like really happy to be there, or I'd be meeting someone for the first time. Um, and that's uh, an environment that, that I thrive in. Right. Like yeah. I'm I'm a born, educated and experienced small talker. Right. Because that's, you know, ultimately, uh, like with off the record, that's what small that's what the show was. It was small talk. And I could mm -hmm. engage anyone anytime, except when I didn't feel well, I would stand in front of the green room and I would think I don't want to go in there. Oh, my God. You know, I, I know I have to. Yeah, but I don't want to go in there to the point where there was times when I had tears in my eyes because I just felt like like so out of place. I felt like I would walk in and everyone would go, well, this is disappointing. Yeah. And, and to that, I think, and again, I, I don't care who you are. I think just in life, people want to feel like, and this is also part of what I've learned along the way is, my God, how many times is your reaction of how that person reacted to you? Well, I must've done something wrong. You know what I mean, man? They, they were supposed to be over, overly joyed when they saw me or ran into me. And I always felt like, you know what, you want to be on, you want to be positive with people. And when you can't have that I also want to go into a quick phase here and just talk about, because I'll say one of the things and tools of, hey, what was your tool as a young hockey player? Well, drink more beer. What was your tool as an adult? Probably drink more alcohol. Two and a half years ago, and we had talked about this, and I've talked to other people since, and it's been interesting. That is the one part, I'll say from a medication standpoint, has been a huge benefit for me. And I don't think it's completely solved it. But that, to me, when we're talking about all this, Michael, is of people trying to, and this is, I was very lucky to get on one medication and for the most part has been very positive experience for me. Hasn't solved everything, but it really thinking back to, I just remember laying in bed and my heart would just not stop racing. And I just remember thinking, I remember the place I was at living in my old apartment. I just thought if I ever get to the other side of this, I'm going to be thankful because I'm able to actually sleep. 
And that is one of the things I'll say too. the nights where I can actually just, I'm like, oh my God, this is so incredible. I'm going to get to have a great night's sleep, but the medication portion of it, do you see that as something that people are talking about more? And I guess flat out that has helped a lot of people over the years. Medication is uh, hugely controversial. Yeah. Um, medication uh, is, if, if you mention all kinds of medications outside of an antidepressant, people have a certain attitude towards them, which is, hey, if I'm sick and I got to take it. I mean, there was a time uh, probably 20 years ago, I guess, when people said, oh, I would never take an antibiotic, right? But there weren't a lot of people who said that. And I think mm -hmm. it quickly disappeared because they were dying of things like pneumonia or they were living in agony with an ear infection or their kid was, you know, they were putting oil in their ears to, you know, <laughs> as a natural remedy um, yeah. when this antibiotic would actually fix them right up. So for the most part, if we're sick, we say, I, I'll take medication to make me better. When it comes to the antidepressant though, there's a huge percentage of the population. I, I don't know if it's 50%, but there's a ton of people who will say, I don't believe in meds. You know, I don't, yeah, I don't believe yeah. in meds. And that's a huge issue. And, uh, you know, I, I try to include that in talks when I give them to say, okay, I'm not advocating for medication. I'm not shilling for the drug companies. Yeah. I'm not saying <clears throat> you should go tomorrow to your doctor and get on meds. I'm saying that if you're sick enough, as you and I have both been, then your attitude should be, I will do anything to get better because right now I'm not living. I will do anything. You have to leave everything on the table because depression, anxiety, there's not one way to treat it. There's, uh, there's no gold standard. Like, it, it, you know, if you had uh, Hodgkin's disease, uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, and uh, you went to your doctor and he said, you have Hodgkin's and, uh, you know, I think we'll be able to, uh, you know, to, to cure you and uh, I think it's going to work out okay. But, uh, you know, you need chemotherapy. You would get the same chemotherapy in Ottawa as you would in Toronto, as you would in Montreal, as you would in, Al I mean, I guess I don't have to necessarily go on with all kinds of cities yeah. proving I know the geography of Canada, <laughs> but it would be the same treatment you would get everywhere, right? Yeah. They call it the gold standard. That's how mm -hmm. you treat that illness. A doctor doesn't have to go, well, you know, I'm thinking maybe, maybe we should try this, but that's what it's like with psychiatric illness. There's no one way to do it, which isn't anyone's fault, but also there's no one holding your hand. If you have to go to a cardiologist, Sean, because you, you have a problem with your heart, the, the cardiologist doesn't make you figure out what you're gonna do in the future. It's done for you. You go to your family yeah. doctor, checks your blood yeah. pressure. Oh my God, your blood pressures. You don't have to say, well, what am I going to do about this? But with mental health, we all start off from this. I, I don't know what to do. No one's leading me by the hand. And for mm -hmm. some people that not knowing what to do, that fear is debilitating and it prevents mm -hmm. them from actually getting help. Yeah, I agree with you. And to that, now I've been fortunate, as I said, lo lots of different things. Everybody's Sorry in about different this, place. by the way. Sorry, I, I'm, you know, this, um, my laptop is on my lap, actually. Yeah. I thought it was a mandatory thing, laptop, lap. <laughs> uh, but I realized, first of all, my size compared to you, I'm giant, which I find a bit disconcerting. I'll no, that's okay. You. V5 yeah. full thumb. Uh, 
but also, uh, I know it's a little bit shaky, so I apologize for that. But you know what? You're not paying me for this, so fuck off. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we can edit that part out as well. Uh, I have to ask for people, and again, went through the process, got on medication, was a bit of frustration, like I said, and don't want to ever sound like, oh my God, this is the magic pill. But I'd say about six weeks in, took a little time off work, some different things settling. I felt pretty good, and at least I felt better. And there's been a path to that. How much is we, or I want to say setting up for failure, Michael, but in our system and lack thereof of resources, how many people just in, if I'm dealing with anxiety and depression and all of a sudden I go into the queue to be trying to get help and then I get a word that it's going to be six months or a year, how much are we actually contributing to the negativity and to actually the disease itself in a sense of, I would rather not even be thinking about it versus setting up for what is probably some false hope when it comes to professional help here in Canada or anywhere in the world for that matter. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's the false hope, but it's delayed yeah. hope. Yeah. Um, so like I, I have spoken to far too many people that have gone to the, uh, the ER uh, because they have suicidal uh, thoughts. Uh, I've spoken to far, far too many, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah. This is not emotion. <clears throat> I've spoken to far too many people, uh, you know, who've taken their kids to the ER and they're dismissed. Um, and that's not necessarily the fault of, uh, you know, the triage nurse who, who there's just, there's no place to put people. Yeah. Right. So think of what it says to you, though, if you say to a doctor, um, whether it's your family doctor or uh, in the ER, and you say, you know, I have thoughts of taking my own life. And they talk to you a little bit about it, and they think, okay, well, you're not an immediate risk to yourself, so um, we're going to send you home. Like, think about how they've just minimized your illness. The yeah. statement is that these thoughts that you have, which are the most dangerous thoughts that a human being can have, are not valid enough that we're going to give you help right now. So it's like you start to wonder, well, you know, am I making this up? Like, like how, is, how are people not taking me seriously? And by not taking me seriously, I mean I get an appointment with a psychiatrist nine months down the road, six months down the road. It doesn't matter. It's not today. And the fact that that still goes on is tragic. And I don't blame the people in the system for the system. You blame the people who create the system. How somehow, if you go to your family doctor and you have a problem with your heart, you're in to see a cardiologist. If you go to your family doctor and you say, I haven't smiled in a year, um, I'm miserable. Uh, you know, I just, I feel like I'm giving up my life to my illness. And yeah, you know, my life doesn't mean as much to me as it used to. So yeah, you know, I don't think about killing myself, but I wouldn't necessarily think it was the worst thing in the world if I was no longer here. That's not a medical emergency. That's a nine-month appointment that you're getting with the doctor. What the hell's wrong with mm -hmm. us where that's a system that we continue to endorse? Yeah, and I guess the endorsement part of it, is it ever going to get better? Like, I, I don't mean better, but, I, you know, you've been at the, you know, the bell let's talk. You've got the sick, not weak. And, of course, it's made a difference. But at the same time, as you said, there's certain things that we point to, whether it be cancer, whether it be a lot of other things that the funding that, you know, that it is, you know, when, when AIDS was, was there, there were a lot of funding, a lot of talk from the mental health standpoint. Unfortunately, it's an annual discussion, but has there been any real movement? And do you see any light at the end of the tunnel or is it just, hey, just kind of keep plugging ahead and try to make a difference one by one? You know, I think the problem is uh, like my relationship to 
uh, to the system, you know, as someone, you know, like who, you know, tiny, tiny factor in the system. So I'm not, I'm not, you know, not blowing up my own importance, but I have only one relevance and that's to make people feel like they're understood or yeah. to make the, to empower them to say, I can talk about that or to empower them to be able to say, I don't understand my partner who sleeps beside me, who has depression, who I thought I understood, but since I've never been through it, I always thought, oh, well, we all go through it sometime. That's my job is to convince that person that they don't understand it, that we don't all go through it sometime. If it is a mental illness, we don't all go through it. So the system, you know, to me is, is something that I can't, really impact. As a matter of fact, I hear all the time, oh, Michael, you convinced me to go for help. And now I go for help, but I can't find any help. Uh, so is it going to get, is it going to get better? Probably eventually it would. Are we close to that point? Absolutely not. You know, has it gotten better over the last 10 years? I don't think so. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we could start by, uh, by saying, okay, well, you know, a psychologist should be covered by OHIP. You know, mm -hmm. like if you have a, you know, like if you're really battling mental illness, why should you have to pay out of your pocket while in the same waiting room in that hospital, somebody's waiting to go in and have sophisticated brain scan and um, for Parkinson's, and yet everything is paid for. Like, think about that. Parkinson's is a brain disease. You can't pay for Parkinson's treatment in Canada, right? We have universal health care. Everybody gets the same treatment, or at yeah. least that's the plan. But you're sitting beside that person and, and you're saying, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to go see a psychologist and it's going to cost me $220 uh, for an hour. That's wrong. Mm -hmm. And it goes against everything we as Canadians believe. And until we acknowledge the fact that a psychiatric illness is just as bad as a physical illness, until we say, well, that's a brain disease. You know, if mm -hmm. Parkinson's mm -hmm. is a brain disease, why is depression not a brain disease? Why is it a mental illness? Yeah, no. And, and it's funny. And I ended up doing a lot of the psychologist stuff and I've done it a few times in my life, going through divorce, uh, going through problems and it never worked. I could never relate, but what is very different, Michael, and it's even just having a conversation and, and this is still not us sitting down just as buddies, but it's pretty close to it. The person that's related to it and whether you've had children, gone through divorce, lost your job, anything that happens within your life, my ability is if I'm talking to another person that I can relate to and professionally, my first conversation as a goaltender was with Clint Malarchuk. And I never forget that conversation of being in training camp and talking to Clinton. You know, you're kind of sitting there and as a goaltender, I'm young. I've been drafted. Well, I'm the greatest goalie ever. I'm, I'm never going to show any weakness to anybody. I'm terrified. I'm absolutely so nervous from age 10 till I stopped playing. One of the biggest release I ever had was stop playing hockey. But talking to Clint Malarchuk, and he related to being terrified, the fear of failure. Now, this obviously, from Clint's standpoint, went to a whole nother level with his away-from-the-rink behavior, but that, for me, was important. And this is when I hear of more people talking about their mortgage. I know it sounds funny, but I'm just saying an overall life that I can relate to that are going through the same things. I get way more out of that than just talking to some person that doesn't really know me, you know, that maybe, and some people that works for, and I guess that's nice. And I also, from a medication standpoint, as you're talking about, and I watch all my documentaries all the time, I find it interesting in Canada, and I relate this to my time in Russia, in Russia, they basically medicate the society with vodka. And I find it really interesting here in Canada, we put more time into legalizing marijuana and in the case of Vancouver drugs in a sense of, I'm kind of looking at the same thing and thinking, is this one of our ways to kind of suppress and allow, hey, you know what, we can't afford to get everyone on medication. We can't afford to get them help, but you know what? 
we're going to get you high because we're going to end up just basically suppressing some of that stuff. And I, I kind of look and say, you know, big picture, what else is it? People say, well, it's the government wants their cut. But I look at all these little things as far as a society, what we're doing and not doing to relate. And I just want to get that in about the talk part, because as I said, I find the therapy of sitting on with you today for an hour, just going back and forth to be incredible versus if I call up somebody that doesn't know me, I don't get much out of that. It's the power of feeling understood. Uh, and there's uh, like I, I there's nothing wrong with the the saying you're never alone um, when it comes to mental health. Like I, I'm not mm -hmm. criticizing people for saying that, but it's to me is is it only goes so far because mm -hmm. the truth is that we all battle illness um, to a large extent on our own. You can't you can't share the pain that you're in. Uh, you can't share like that physical pain. It's not like you can no. say, okay, well, you know, thanks for sitting with me during chemotherapy. I'm not feeling as sick today because you're sitting with me. So mm -hmm. there's a part of a battle that we all fight on our own. But what I do think is uh, incredibly powerful is getting people to feel understood. I remember I was giving a talk in Edmonton. This is probably five years ago. A woman comes up to me afterwards and she's really sobbing uncontrollably. And I said, wow, you know, like, uh, like I'll, I'll wait here as long as you want to talk, um, but you can't talk right now because you can't get the words out. And I'm thinking it's not sadness, I don't think, but I want to hear what it is. So she came back in 10 minutes and I said, so like what ha has you so emotional? She like composed herself. For the first time in my life, I feel understood. Because I had described to her, not just to her, to this audience, what depression had done to me. Uh, and that's what she related to. That's what make her, made her feel, I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. Because it's easy to think no one could understand me because I've created this. Especially, you know, if you buy into the stigma, you think, well, I've created this in my own mind. How would anyone else understand me? Because no one else has created it in their mind the way I've created it in my mind. And mm -hmm. I have given, say, 200 talks. I've asked the question, how many people in the audience have battled mental illness like me? Uh, and sometimes a lot of people put up their hands because it's a mental health talk, so you know why they're there. And then sometimes if it's a corporate talk, almost no one puts up their hands because they don't want their company to know. Mm -hmm. But I'll say, if you put your hand up, I'm going to describe now what depression and anxiety have done to me, have felt like for me, have affected my life, how, how it's all sort of come out in me. Mm. And if you haven't gone through this, put up your hand and tell me, right? Not one person has ever said, no, not me. Not one person has ever said loss of the ability to experience joy. It's not when we're depressed that we, we bad things don't happen. Good things don't happen to us. You know, mm. it's just that we can't feel them. We can't feel what used to be basic joy no longer. Anyone here not go through that who's had depression? Not one person. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, I go through a list of like four or five things that I've experienced because of mental illness, and we all feel them. But no one knew that everybody else was feeling many of the same things. That, mm -hmm. to me, is what being a mental health advocate is about, is making people feel like they're not the only ones, that others understand.
Yeah. And I also think from a life cycle, as you go through and I go through different experiences in my life, one of the tools that I brought from basically 2008 to 2011 is this time. And again, not the end of the world, but losing job. I also understood what was going to happen around me in a sense of, hey, there are a lot of kind people out there, but there's not a lot of people I truly want to sit down with. And I'm not expecting, I'm not expecting them to show up with dinner. And I have my group, I have the tools now, whether or not that's going to be good enough, time will tell. But to me, that was one of the things that really helped me. I, I didn't do a checklist of who ended up sending me a notice that I lost my job and why didn't you send me? Why didn't you contact me? I had known from leaving the NHL in 2008 exactly what to expect, what was going to be around me. So to me, that was kind of a positive. Again, to have such a wonderful person in my life and some of the support systems that I didn't have before. But I think these are all the tools as we move along in trying to help ourselves, help ourselves understand. And at the same time, not setting ourselves up for failure in a sense of, as you've pointed out, like there's nothing magical, right? And, and for yourself, I think it's a completely different varying degree than myself. I mean, you've realized that, hey, you're going to wake up every day for the rest of your life having to deal with exactly that. It's not going to be a 10. You do the one for 10 and you've said you're basically between a four and seven. You are not expecting at any time the rest of your life to be a truly a 10. And I'm sure for a lot of people, that would be really hard to comprehend. It is. But if you if you take it and say, OK, well, I don't really understand that. I don't really understand the whole idea of being on a medication that prevents you from being an eight, nine or 10. Like, why would you do that? And my answer is uh, because it's a better option than the illness that I have learned to love the thing I hate the least. I hate the medication that I'm on, but I hate the illness way more. People yeah. who have cancer and have to go through chemotherapy because they could be cured, they hate the chemotherapy, right? Like who's who's uh -huh. who's gonna who's gonna say, oh, you know, that's a good experience? They hate what the drugs do to them, mm -hmm. but they hate the idea of dying more than they hate the side effects from the drugs. So for me, I don't like being on meds. I wish I could was not on meds. I wish I could replace medication with something. But until I'm pretty sure that whatever I replace it with is going to do the job, I'm going to stick with it because it's way better than this. What's that? Yeah. Do you know what that is? I, I don't well, know if I've I shown think, it to you before. No, no. I think you have markings for the days that you yeah. feel. It, it, is, is it your lowest points? No. So, so this was my low point. This is actually okay. a tattoo. 11-24-08. Okay, okay. Hello? Yeah. Uh, YULMH52104000. So, uh, November 24th, 2008, Montreal, that's YUL, Marriott Hotel Room 521 yeah. 4 a.m. in the morning. That's when I was at my lowest. Uh, we were in uh, Montreal shooting off the record at the Grey Cup. Uh, I had had a terrible, uh, like I'd fallen into the deepest hole that I had mm -hmm. ever been in. Um, yeah. You know, Casey had had a really bad year with her, with her eyes. Uh, and I was just sitting on the edge of my bed and I went, wow, I understand why people take their own lives. Yeah. It wasn't that I didn't love my wife or my kids. It wasn't that, you know, I didn't love my parents at the time. It wasn't that I didn't love the world that I you know, was living in and that, you know, like from my job to everything else. But I was in so much pain and the possibility in my mind of feeling any joy was so small that I thought, wow. This is why people kill themselves. And yeah. I wasn't a danger to myself because I'd been through it before. So I had some hope because I had come back from that terrible position. But if I would have been hopeless, 
I wouldn't have made it. Yeah. And it's funny when you talk about that, I think back to travel and now one of the things I've enjoyed and I enjoyed when I was back in Ottawa of having a job was not traveling. And when I would travel and you go all around the world and whether it be jet lag or having too much to drink or not sleeping properly, it was incredible mentally where you could put yourself. And I've often put myself in that now of being so thankful that I've got some structure that I don't necessarily have to go through that. And I think to people, wow, for the person that has to continue to do it, man, oh man, are you ever put yourself in a vulnerable spot and how much more uh, you end up hating it and hating the disease itself. Yeah. Well, I mean, here's the thing that is a trigger for you. That is something that you hate. Um, but um, somebody else, including me, you know, just in general, uh, I love going to uh, um, anywhere, but especially smaller towns and giving yeah. a talk about mental health. So what triggers you, what hurts you, what makes your life more difficult can be the exact opposite for me. There's things in my life that do to me what travel did for you uh, on the negative side. But just yeah. like like back to uh, back to medication. Just leave it on the table. Mm -hmm. Just mm -hmm. make the decision because uh, this is relevant not just for people who are hiding in the closet and you know don't want to don't want to share their mental illness, don't want to go for help. You know, see, I don't believe in medication, but mm -hmm. You know, there's tons of people that have gone for help and didn't get help. And it's so difficult to motivate them to continue the fight because mm -hmm. it's exhausting. Because, you know, if, if you're going the, the medication route, as you said, for you, it was six weeks. So the idea mm -hmm. of weaning off one drug, going on to another drug and taking six weeks is more than enough to make you quit and say, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm, I'm not going for help. You know, I just I, I and, and let's face it, depression is the illness that sucks the energy out of you. The enthusiasm, the um, just that bounce in your step is gone. Mm -hmm. And now you have to fight without any of that energy. And it's incredibly mm -hmm. difficult. And sometimes you need somebody saying, like Sean Simpson or Michael Landsberg, saying, mm -hmm. you, you, you got to keep fighting. You yeah, got to exactly. keep fighting. Because otherwise, you're giving up your life to your illness. And that's tragic. Just like suicide is tragic, it's mm -hmm. tragic to go through your life with a mental illness, without searching out the planet Earth for something that will help you. Yeah, exactly. And it was funny because when I first went on the medication, it was typical to anything, but it was really powerful of quickly understanding a small conversation with one person led to five or six people right in the same, you know, some people that had been on the medication for 25 years, others that had tried it. And I thought to myself, that's pretty sad. And one of them was one of my best friends and I had no idea. You know what I mean? That that how how much of a friend are you truly if you don't even know? Like if that's a part of, and especially as we get past our fifties, but in sharing that, and that's kind of the day that I just thought, like, why? And people are like, oh, you're so brave to talk about the fact you're on medication. And I guess I can't even compute that right now, Michael, because I just think of well, well why? Like, well, why would it even matter? But I, I know it does. Why. I know, I, I know it does. I know it does. I'm just saying though for myself. But I, I can tell I just you think why. To myself, yeah. 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 See, I'm not used to having a conversation that I'm not in control of and that I can't interrupt. <laughs> so screw off if you think that you own this entire conversation. But this is a Sean Simpson show. <laughs> God, well, let me see. Yeah, it does say simmer down, uh, yeah. which I, I really like. I didn't know if the sick podcast actually is probably, and we're using sick, not weak. I guess it's not supposed to mention that same meaning, but anyways, what were you going to say? Sorry. Yeah. I, uh, I was giving a talk last week, uh, to, uh, green shield. Are, are you familiar with green shield? 
Green Shield. I uh, know. Sounds like an, an insurance company. It's an insurance company. Uh, they provide benefits. They're huge. Mm-hmm. They have 6 million people that they provide benefits for okay. across the country. Okay. They're actually a not-for-profit, which I'm sure at other insurance companies, that's the worst thing you could say. Not-for-profit. It's like, no, never say <laughs> not-for-profit at this insurance company again. But Green Shield was, was founded in 1957 by a pharmacist who wanted to get um, drugs to people for less money. So he created this mm-hmm. group plan and as a not-for-profit mm-hmm. and it stayed that way. So I was giving a talk to, uh, um, to Green Shield and the Globe and Mail. So they, they had partnered on this uh, symposium. I don't, I don't know if that's the right word. And they had all these panel discussions, uh, which were of very little interest to me. Uh, and uh, therefore, I actually sat in the green room with, wait for it, noted goaltender, Noted mental health sufferer, noted, you jump in when you know who it is, noted mental health Corey advocate, Hirsch. Corey Hirsch. Okay. Uh, he was in Toronto and I got to know him through mental yeah. health. Yeah, Hirsch is a great and, guy, yeah. Yeah, he's a great guy. And he uh, said, oh, you know, I'm, I'm in Toronto and I'm going to come hear you speak or whatever. So I was on the stage and I said, how many people think that mental illness is, uh, the stigma around mental illness is still a problem? 200 people in the room, 200 people put up their hands. Who's going to say, no, that's not a problem. I said, how many people here, if I say, my name is Michael Landsberg, I battle depression and anxiety, I'm on medication, I will be the rest of my life, I understand why people take their own lives, I've been debilitated by this illness, but I'm not sick, and I'm not, uh, or I am sick, I'm not embarrassed, I'm not ashamed, and I'm not weak. How many people here think I'm brave for saying that? Everyone puts up their hand. I say, that proves the stigma (laughs) because you think it takes courage because for you, other people, it would take courage because of the stigma. If there was no stigma, it takes no courage. And in my mind, I've never been stigmatized. I never thought, oh my God, I can't let people know this. But that proves it. Until we get to the point where I could be on stage with somebody who's, uh, who's battling an autoimmune disease, lupus. So we're each talking about our illnesses, me with depression and this person uh, with, with me talking about lupus until we get to the point where neither one of us is brave, perceived as brave to be up there, where we're looked at exactly the same way until we get to that point, there's a stigma. Yeah, no, I agree. Well, it was certainly nice to have an opportunity to talk and extended chat with you, Michael. Um, thought I hate to have these little tags on, but obviously the foundation is sick, not weak. Just give some ideas of where I know people reaching out to you personally, um, kind of some of the things that you have going forward. And I hate to kind of sound soft and kind of talking that way, but in addressing and kind of wrapping things up after a nice little chat here. Yeah, I mean, people come on your show and they want to promote things. Uh, I'm not here to promote anything. No, uh, I know. I don't mean promote. I'm, I'm actually no, no, asking more for people. No. What are some of the, because I, I know people have loved reaching out to you personally. That's all. So, yeah, I mean, I wasn't criticizing you. I was saying some yeah. people, like if you forgot to do that, they'd be pissed. <laughs> uh, but for me, you know, I, I try to make myself available so people yeah. will feel understood. Uh, so uh, you can reach out to me in a number of different ways. And our, our, uh, our charity is Sick Not Weak Charitable Foundation. Uh, sicknotweek.com. Uh, I'm on Twitter as are you uh, all the time. Uh, I do a daily blog, the Daily Lands blog. So it's two minutes and 20 seconds or less. Uh, we post it on social media. And, uh, you know, my goal is just to have one person go, wow, you know, I feel understood because if you yeah. can engender that in one person, you can get it uh, into many people. Uh, and uh, my greatest joy is uh, is speaking. So uh, 
speaking on stage, uh, yeah. giving talks, giving, I, I don't like to call it a speech. Uh, and if you would like me to do that, um, reach out michael.landsberg at sicknotweek.com. Uh, and uh, if you ask, decent chance I'll be there. Uh, sounds good. Well, it was nice catching up with you, brother. Uh, lots of love, certainly lots to everybody out there going forward. Like I said, I've found this time and no matter what phase of life I've been in, I've always hated the time, the change of weather, kind of getting into the darkness. And I thought, ah, what a great opportunity. First of all, to catch up with you is always awesome. And an extended chat versus just some flyby commercial interview. And at the same time, I just thought timing wise, I, I think this is a tough time for a lot of people. And for a lot of people, it's a tough time every day. But I do think it's magnified a little bit of this time. So thanks so much, brother, for uh, taking the time and sitting down and uh, having a little chat. Okay, listen to my last word here. Okay. It's not you. It's ya. Okay? Love you, man. <laughs> love you, love man. you, man. Love you, man. Okay. Love you, man. All right. Cheers, brother. Have a great day. And that's a wrap. Hope you don't miss us too much until next time. Follow the sick podcast Simmer Down with John Simpson on YouTube, Facebook, Google Play, and Apple Podcasts.